All right, we are continuing our study on Christ in the Old Testament. We've covered all of the uh, prophecies of Christ. We've covered the personal appearances of Christ, what are called Christophanies. And now we're working our way through the types and shadows of Christ as they're described in the New Testament, which simply refer, refer to uh, symbols of Christ that are pointing forward prophetically to his arrival, to his person, and to his great accomplishments. Uh, what we're currently doing, we're, we're breaking that section of, of types into seven subgroups, and uh, we've covered two of those already, uh, in that we've, we've looked at Old Christ in the Old Testament things, Christ in Old Testament structures, and now we're, we're engaged in Christ in the special events of the Old Testament, the events that do signify Christ in a prophetic sense. And uh, we did our first study in that last time. We only uh, focused in Genesis chapter 1. We didn't quite finish that. There were seven focal points in Genesis 1 that I wanted us to see. We covered, I think, if I remember correctly, I think we covered five of those. So let's pick up the last two. The, the event, of course, in Genesis 1 is creation, the original week of creation, and how uh, I see that there are very specific connection points that are drawn between the events of that first week and then later the arrival of Christ and his work, which brings us ultimately into a new creation. So the, um, the sixth focal point is in the sixth day of creation, uh, as far as we're concerned, the most important day uh, in that it's kind of the, um, the culminating day, the, the crown of God's creation, as some have described it, starting in verse 26, reading through verse 28. And that is, of course, the creation of humanity and God's purpose for creating us. Uh, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so um, there are two important points that are represented in the brief description of day six of creation here. Um, and they both point forward to Christ, both aspects. One has to do with Christ as the ultimate image bearer of God and uh, Christ as the one in whom God ultimately invests all dominion over all things. Um, let's focus first on the image bearer aspect. Verse 26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, in a practical and real world sense, when God created Adam and, he, and, and from Adam created Eve, uh, they did bear God's image. Uh, they didn't bear God's image in the ultimate sense that only Christ could, but they bore God's image effectively. And of course, then we have the whole issue that develops in chapter three, which is the temptation in the garden and the subsequent sin, which then mars or, or deeply impacts and affects the ability of human beings to bear God's image. There's no place in scripture that says, even with the original sin that was committed in the garden, that man no longer functions at all as an image bearer of the Lord, but his ability to accurately reflect and represent God's image uh, is uh, deeply impacted. Uh, so really, ultimately, even though we are folded into the concept of being image bearers of the Lord, this ultimately points forward to Christ. And let's, uh, and of course, we'll come back to Genesis 1. Let's, um, let's jump over to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and find our fulfillment point as it's described here in the introduction to Hebrews in chapter 1. 
starting in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And in that phrase, and this is certainly not by far the only place in the New Testament that... um, that declares and emphasizes Christ as the one in whom the dominion principle is ultimately uh, represented from Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28. But here uh, we have the insistence that, that uh, God appointed his son to be the heir of all things. Heir of all things simply means that God invested dominion in him. And through whom also he created the world. He is, in verse 3 here is where we find the, the, uh, the image bearer aspect emphasized. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I'm going to emphasize a different uh, phrasing here. He is the radiance of the glory of God, which is where we camped in that phrase last study. And then the second phrase is where I want to camp for a moment tonight. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, It's in that phrase, the exact imprint of his nature. It's talking about God the Father having a nature that that identifies him, that that defines him as a being, and that... Christ, and this is an exclusive uh, declaration or description, there's no other person that's ever folded into this category. This is, as many things that pertain to Christ are, this is a category of one. Only Christ qualifies in this category. And that is, only Christ can be described rightly and accurately as, as being the exact imprint of God the Father's nature now in human form, now as a human being. But um, the, the unincarnated God the Father has now incarnated in the person of God the Son in terms of an exact and perfect representation of his nature. Now, the, the wording describes something that was uh, fairly commonplace in the ancient world, uh, and that is... There was uh, such a thing as a, a stamp or an impress that was used to represent the fullness of the personage and the authority of the one who was stamping such things. So like um, in order to transfer ownership on property or in order to send a, a highly important letter, there would, be, um, there would be a seal of wax placed over that thing that's in view. And then uh, that, that warm wax would be ready to receive an imprint and the owner of that property or that, that communication would take his personal seal, which was kind of like, a, like a, a small metal handle that, and it could be a wood carved handle, but there would be, a, there would be at the bottom of that a specific image that was carved into this device, this, this stamp, and it would be stamped into that warm wax, and then the exact imprint representing the person and the authority of the one stamping it would then be represented in that wax. And it's that imagery that Paul uses here in Hebrews 1 to describe how Christ, and in this exclusive sense, only Christ, perfectly and exactly represents the image of God in the earth. Uh, We also represent the image of God as believers and much more so because of the new birth and the sanctifying work of the Lord than other human beings. But even, even unsaved and unregenerate and sinful human beings to some much lower level do represent the image of God. But none of us, whether unregenerate or regenerate, can uh, lay claim to being an exact representation of his nature as only Christ can. So this image-bearing concern of the Lord um, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now the dominion aspect, which I've already referenced, 
And there are many, many passages in the New Testament that emphasize this. But let's, let's look at two important ones from the Old Testament. First in the book of Psalms. And we'll go to the uh, second Psalm, which is one of all of the Psalms, of course, that belongs to the special category of inspired worship songs that are messianic in focus, meaning that um, even among the other inspired worship songs of the book of Psalms, uh, this is one, uh, along with a few others, that is focused on the coming of the person of Christ. And we'll read from uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree, and this is, this is quoting the Lord Jesus himself speaking, though at the time this was originally written by, by uh, David, it had not yet been spoken by him, but it's prophetically describing what he would say. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is describing a negotiation between the father and the son, in which the father um, exhorts and encourages the son of God to ask for a special and particular favor to be given, again, with the principle of exclusivity, given exclusively to him uh, among all human beings that it could possibly be given to. And what he is encouraged to ask for is that all of the nations of the earth would be made his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. Now, those are just, this is what's called a, uh, uh, a doubling description and it, it's a very common way of communicating in Hebrew and in many places in scripture we'll see this kind of doubling effect which is the same thing is said twice but in two different ways in order to simply emphasize the point and make sure we don't miss it so all of the nations being made his heritage and all of the ends of the earth his possession are not two different things they're describing the same thing and we could choose this single word which is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 to describe that, and that is dominion. For the nations to be his heritage, he's given dominion over all the nations. For the ends of the earth to be his possession, he's given dominion over all of the earth. To what extent, to what, to, to what far reach, there is literally no location on earth that will not be under the boundaries of his dominion. And then verse 9 simply goes on to describe him in the activity of exercising his dominion. And as far as our perspective, and we studied this not terribly long ago, when in the beginning of our Acts study in chapter 1, uh, we went through a, a six or eight week focal point, kind of a mini-series on the the meaning, the significance of the ascension of Christ. Uh, verse 9 is the activity of the Messiah in his resurrected, ascended, triumphant role now during this moment of history from the moment of his ascension until this present moment and, and until the second coming of Christ. What's being described in verse 9 is currently happening. There are some within the wider Christian community, they do it with good intentions, but it's really bad theology and it's, it's bad Bible interpretation that would say verse 9 is only going to be fulfilled in a future physical earthly millennium after the second coming of Christ. This is not millennium description. This is a present moment of history description in which it says, speaking now about Christ's activity in his ascension, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The idea being that the nations aren't particularly thrilled about being given to the Son of God to be under his dominion. Earlier in the psalm, they even are straining with all of their natural rebellious tendency against the dominion authority of the Son of God. Nevertheless, Verse 9 is describing how he is going to exercise dominion over them, whether they like it or not, whether they want it or not, whether they're asking for it or not. 
he is exercising dominion over them. And, and while at any given moment, snapshot in the last 2,000 years of history, you may look at some incident in history and say, that doesn't look like Christ has dominion over them. But I will just say this in the progression of history from the ascension till today, if you're a careful student and observer of history, there are clear thumbprint evidences of the Lord extending his hand from the throne of God in heaven and doing exactly what's being described here in verse 9. And he will continue to do so until the second coming. And so then in verse 10, there's simply now a word to the wise for the, the earthly natural authority figures who are under the greater authority, greater dominion of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, telling them to, you better wise up and you better get with the program or else you will be ground under his foot if you continue persistently to have a hardened heart and to resist his authority. So it says in verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Here, this is not a romantic kiss, just to be clear. Um, what other kind of kiss could there be besides a romantic kiss? There could be a kiss of affection, but in the ancient world, and this isn't as common today, you don't see this in world politics so much today, but in the ancient world, it was very common for a conquering king or emperor to present his hand and specifically his ring signifying his authority to those that he had conquered and the authority representatives of those he had conquered. For what reason? To be kissed. Not on the lips. It's a kiss of submission. It's a kiss recognizing. It's like bowing the knee before the sovereign and the sovereign's holding out his hand and the, the submissive one takes the hand and kisses the hand, kisses the ring to say, I am acknowledging and recognizing that you have true authority and dominion over me. So the warning here is kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, meaning ultimately blessed are those who kiss his, his uh, symbol of authority and um, for the rest that resist and harden their hearts, um, they will be lost to history. All right, so um, I said we'd look at two. This one we've studied several times, but it's worth revisiting again. Prophet Daniel, chapter 7. And we're still looking for evidences of the dominion of the Messiah fulfilling the Genesis 1 dominion mandate in a way that you and I could not apart from him. Daniel chapter 7. And I'll reemphasize just real briefly why again this passage that we're going to read, we're going to read verses 13 and 14, is by many Bible prophecy teachers in the last hundred years or so, Many have misunderstood, again, the timing of this, just like the other passage I just took us through in, in Psalm 2, and um, made to uh, refer to a second coming and the immediate aftermath scenario. The immediate aftermath of the second coming, in their view, is the natural, physical, on earth, 1,000-year golden age or millennium period in the future. Uh, instead... This is not a millennium scene. This is a, uh, in terms of that kind of uh, view of the millennium, this is a, an ascension of Christ scene. And uh, I'll emphasize when we get to it again why that is. Uh, verse 13, this is one of the visions that the Lord gave to the prophet Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the, cl with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And it's just those phrases that are taken by this group of Bible prophecy teachers that I'm referring to to, refer, to describe a, a future second coming of Christ. But they stop reading right in the, ver in the middle of verse 13 
and in stopping reading, they miss the context that describes exactly where this is happening and therefore when it's happening. And where did he, the one that came, the one with the clouds of heaven, the one like a son of man, obviously Christ is the one like a son of man. It, he took this phrase, Jesus did, just as a reminder, he took this phrase and made it his preferred self-designation in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the, it's, the one, it's the one Old Testament title that he most commonly used to describe himself because he was identifying himself with this passage. So the clouds of heaven and the Son of Man are coming, but again, where are they coming to? He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, now there, is a, there is an ultimate theological sense in which if I said to you, where is the Ancient of Days located? You'd have to say everywhere because God is omnipresent. The Ancient of Days here is a reference to God the Father in this passage. And God the Father is everywhere present in all of existence, in all of his creation. But here... We don't have a focus on his omnipresence, but his personal presence, his localized presence, what is called by others in theology as his manifest presence. And where is his personal localized manifest presence? I'm talking about God the Father. It's in heaven. It's at the throne of God. Not on earth. Not an earthly millennium being described. So this is not describing Christ coming from heaven to earth, but Christ coming from earth to heaven. And that only ever happened in the ascension. He came to the Ancient of Days, Christ did, and was presented before him. This is having risen from the dead, having ascended now back to heaven, having entered the throne room. He is formally and officially presented before God the Father in order to have all that he accomplished in his life in this world evaluated by God the Father. We've been studying in our Sunday uh, teaching series just recently how the Lord periodically visits true churches and evaluates them. Here, it's the Son of God himself who's being evaluated in terms of what did his life in this world and the work that he accomplished in his death and resurrection, what did it ultimately mean? And so he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and here's what it meant, verse 14. This is... God the Father's response to the presentation of the returning, triumphant, obedient, faithful Son of God who has accomplished the work of redemption and salvation. To him was given dominion. And we're meant to, to think just for a moment how much was given to him. How much of a theoretical total amount of dominion that belonged to God the Father. How much of that was given to the Son, transferred to the Son? Not in the sense that God the Father has abdicated dominion, but now God has chosen to fully share His dominion, His right, His access to exercise dominion over all things and over all nations, over all people, over all of history how much of that is transferred to his son in a sharing sense by the father. And the idea is 100%, all of it. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, meaning the kingdom doesn't begin at the second coming of Christ. The kingdom begins when? Everybody following me? Have I already put you to sleep? I hope not. Yeah, the kingdom, not, not now. The kingdom begins... When? The ascension. The ascension. That's the moment that he returned. That's the moment that he was presented. That's the moment he was evaluated. And that's the moment that he was given dominion. Never to let go of it, but from that point forward to exercise it. And so to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That, or for this purpose, it was all given to him that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, we all know they, they all won't willingly, 
But the point of Psalm 2, which I'm linking with Daniel 7, is they will be made to serve him whether they like it or not or whether they're even aware of it or not. All of the nations of the earth and all of the peoples of the earth throughout the progression of 2,000 years of ascension forward history from that point to this point so far have been made to serve his purpose. He is exercising dominion and history is going to come to a grand finale serving and fulfilling his purposes because he exercises dominion. If he didn't exercise dominion, history would be like the greatest lottery ever invented. And what's, what's the problem with the lottery? I'll just use the California lottery as an example. What's the big problem with the California lottery? It's random, as far as we can tell. I mean, maybe there's someone behind the scenes monkeying with the numbers in a, in a specific way, but we would never know. As far as the public is concerned, it's just, you know, it's like... You, you put your dollar down and you've got one in whatever it is, 14 million chances to, you know, hit the, the, the jackpot. But it's, you know, one in 14 million, just in case anybody's wondering, those are not good odds. That's why I, I, I just don't play the lottery. It's just not a wise use of that dollar. You may say, it's only a dollar. Yeah, but I mean, I can use that dollar for better purposes. So the idea here is if the Lord were not in dominion over all things, we, none of us would have any idea how history would actually end up. And even God himself, he might have, because he's all knowing, knowing even the future from the past, he would know how it ends up, but he would have no actual control over it. And it could end up anywhere. But his dominion ensures that it ends up where and how it's supposed to end up, and uh, when as well. So his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the dominion mandate given to Adam and Eve, what did Adam do with that mandate? He started in it, he, he began to fulfill it, and then he fumbled the ball in a huge way. But Christ has come and taken dominion. And as far as, as far as the accomplishment, earning him the right to exercise dominion, and God the Father has given him dominion, signifying that he, the life that he lived, the works that he accomplished, the sacrifice that he made are fully pleasing to him. And therefore, he exclusively has access to share the fullness of the dominion of God the Father himself. All right, let's, that's our, our sixth one. Let's look at our seventh one from the creation week. Uh, and this is now, we finished chapter one of Genesis and we only have one now in chapter two <clears throat> because chapter, chapter one only covers six out of the first seven days of the creation week. Seventh day is saved, <clears throat> excuse me, for chapter two. And we'll start in verse 1 on the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so God did all that he did in the creation week, days one, two, three, four, five, and six, culminating in the kind of the crowning achievement of the creation of mankind. And then day seven begins, and God stops working and intentionally starts resting. And you and I understand and recognize, because we, you know, we've thought through the theological ramifications of that description is that why did God rest? Was it because, you know, it's pretty big creating an entire universe. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's, that's a bigger workload than I've ever experienced, creating an entire universe. Maybe God was tuckered out, right? And so he, he would think most things won't tire God out, but, you know, creating a whole universe 
that would certainly do it. And certainly creating human beings in the sixth day, if nothing else wore him out, that wore him out. Of course, that's not the case. God didn't exhaust his resources. His energy wasn't lagging on the, toward the end of day six. And so he needed to take a, you know, a, a little bit of a staycation on the seventh day and uh, just disconnect for a while. Why did God rest? The whole point here is all of this creation week is ultimately pointing forward to a greater thing, a more significant thing, an even more spiritual thing that's going to be reflected and represented in Christ. So let's go back to Hebrews 1. We were just there a minute ago. And now you can leave uh, Genesis behind. We won't be going back to uh, chapter 2 anyway. Hebrews chapter 1. I read this verse just a moment ago, but I'll reread verse 3. And this is the folk, the, the spotlight here in the verse, remember, is on Christ. And it describes he, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which indicates, by the way, that he never runs out of energy because he upholds the universe. That's present tense. That's not, that's not he created the universe and then ran out of, out, of, uh, out of energy at the end of that creation week. This is ongoing. Continually he upholds the universe. If the Lord himself were to just, I say, you know, like, I'm going to take an hour off. I'm going to stop upholding the universe by the word of my power for, for an hour. What would happen to the universe? What would happen is the universe would either explode or implode, but it would not maintain its present consistency. Um, nuclear physicists, and I've referenced this before, but it's been a long time. I think it might have been all the way back to when we studied Hebrews chapter 1 a few years ago as we went through Hebrews together. Nuclear physicists have studied the results of God's creation down to minutia of detail. They don't necessarily, unless they're born again, they don't necessarily understand the spiritual ramifications of some of their scientific observations and conclusions, but that doesn't make their observations and conclusions automatically wrong. One of the things they've studied, those that study the atomic structure of all things. You guys understand how this works? Your body, and this is true for all other physical things in the universe, all other physical things, there's nothing excluded from this principle in terms of the physical universe. Your body's composed of cells. You've got how many cells in your body? Take a guess. Billions of cells. These little squirming little categories, subcategories of your physical existence. So you've got billions of those, and all of those cells, every single one is composed of molecules. How many molecules do you think in one cell? Millions of molecules in a single cell. And then every one of those molecules is composed of atoms. And how many atoms in a single molecule? Again, it just keeps going. It's literally millions of atoms in a single molecule and then each one of those atoms is composed, generally speaking, of three parts, three components. It's a proton, a neutron, and an electron that's whirling around, you know, like, like, a, like the Earth whirling around the sun. It's like a mini little universe going on at the atomic structure level. But what nuclear physicists have determined is that there's some mysterious force that keeps the electron, neutron, and proton coherent and connected to each other. And without that mysterious force that they haven't really completely grasped or understood, without that force being applied, every atom would just fly apart. So if every atom flew apart, that means every molecule would fly apart, which would mean every cell would fly apart, which would mean all things would fly apart all living things and all unliving things. And so what they've done is they've kind of, they've kind of named that 
force that they don't fully grasp or understand. They just recognize its existence. Do you remember the terminology that they've attached to that force? Nuclear glue. It works for me. Except for the fact that it's leaving one element out, one aspect out. And what is that? It's not glue at all. Can't buy it at Walmart or on Amazon. What is it? It is this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, what they are trying to understand as nuclear glue is the word of his power being exerted every day, every moment upon every atom of his creation, keeping it connected and coherent and purposeful. And then after, so that just proves he's, he's constantly exercising effort and energy. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the conclusion of his work, the conclusion of his saving, redeeming work in his return to heaven from uh, his life and, and work here on earth is that he was presented, we, we, we saw that in the Daniel prophecy, he was presented before the Ancient of Days, the, the work was evaluated and was approved and was pleasing to God the Father, and God the Father welcomed him to, as we just saw in uh, one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and I think we'll be even focused on that in this uh, coming uh, two weeks from now, uh, this uh, Sunday after home church, uh, in our study in that last letter, uh, he sat down on the throne belonging to God the Father. Why did he sat down? Why did he sit down? You know, is it, again, is it, um, you know, it, I, I love to preach and I, I love to teach and I, and I, just for practical person, purposes, I stand up behind the pulpit. But um, if I had a nice, you know, chair, like a high chair, I'd just as soon sit as I was teaching because, you know, at a certain point, my legs get kind of like tired of standing up. Um, when I was young, I had jobs where I stood up all day, no big deal. But at my age, I would prefer to sit down. Is that why he sat down? No, of course not. He sat down as a symbolic representation of what? The work is finished. So let me remind you of one of the details of how God wanted his home to be symbolically represented on earth. So there were two great houses of the Lord in the Old Testament. And they each served as a symbol of heaven for their era of Old Testament history. The two great houses were the tabernacle of the Lord in the days of Moses and the temple of the Lord in the days of Solomon. And they were set up like a house. Fairly simple house in that there was an outside the walls courtyard. And then there were two rooms inside the walls. An outer room, which is like a common area for inviting guests into the house. And then there is a private area, an innermost room behind the curtain, where only the master of the house would go. And in the outer area, where Levitical priests came to serve the Lord on a daily basis, including the high priest, uh, there was a light which is the lampstand. There was a dining table with showbread that was arranged on it, baked fresh every day, placed on the table. And there was a, an altar of incense for a devotional focus just in front of the curtain. How many chairs were there in the outer room? The holy place, the, the common area of God's house. And I, not that God's house in any sense is actually common, but the place where others besides God himself were allowed to enter. How many chairs in that outer room? Zero chairs. How many chairs in the inner room? One and one only. And only one was ever allowed to sit on it. Trust me, Moses went into that inner room on occasion. And Aaron was allowed on the Day of Atonement under very specific provisions in the high priest service, which ultimately points forward to Christ as well. We'll be studying that in a future segment of our study of types. 
both of these men, these special men, these holy men, these godly men, these great men of Old Covenant history, they were both allowed to go in past the curtain into the inner room where the, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, the only item of furniture in that inner room was, no bed because God never needed to sleep, but a chair representing the throne of God. Do you think Moses ever thought to himself, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit down here on the Ark of the Covenant just to feel what it feels like. Do you think he ever, you know, like a child would do that, you know, like sit in their dad's office chair just to, just to get a feel for that great position? Do you think Aaron ever dared to sit on the Ark of the Covenant? What do you think might have happened if either one had dared to do so? Not good stuff. Like we have the, the famous story of Nadab and Abihu who, you know, just went into the room, let alone they didn't get on the Ark of the Covenant and they just offered the wrong kind of incense there and fire came out from the Ark of the Covenant and literally consumed them. They died instantly. So Moses wouldn't dare to sit on it. Aaron wouldn't dare sit on it because only one sat on it and it was the Lord himself. But the point of the sinning was to signify the work is finished. It is a place of authority. Someone mentioned authority. It absolutely is. It's the throne represented on earth. And the throne in heaven is certainly a place of authority. But in terms of the focal point here is its place in the sequencing of the plan of redemption and salvation. In that it's emphasized here after making purification for sins. Where did he do that? On the cross. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand. And th there's something important that happens in between those two things, which is resurrection and ascension. The point being, the bookends of the description is, he sacrificed, which is the work of saving us. And then he sat down signifying, I've accomplished the work of salvation. There's nothing more that needs to be done in order to assure the salvation of God's people. So, just like in Genesis 1, or excuse me, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, just like on the seventh day of the original creation week, God rested from his work, Christ, when he finishes the work. And which work is it? If God rested at the end of the week of creation, then what is Christ's rest in relationship to? The new creation. So, just like God created in the original creation and then rested at the end of that work, Christ began a work of new creation in the, in the world, in the earth, and then sat down upon the throne of God, signifying that his work was finished. Um, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, I just won't take time to read this, but if you're taking notes, uh, add Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, which then uses the imagery of the children of Israel's journey through the wilderness in that 40-year uh, journey from Egypt to the Promised Land to describe how God was calling them to enter into his rest. And um, that entering into his rest is simply that he accomplished the work to save them and he called them to rest like he was resting, not because they had accomplished any of the work but they are entering into the benefits of the work that he accomplished and the rest that he provided in the experience of true salvation. All right, that brings to an end our study of the creation week types. Uh, we have enough time for at least one more of our considerations tonight. Uh, turn back to Genesis now, though. Jump to chapter 3. So now we're past the original week of creation in chapter 3. We don't know how much time elapsed between the beginning of chapter 2 and what we're reading in chapter 3. It doesn't really matter. Uh, all that matters is something dramatic has happened now. And the dramatic thing that's happened is that the serpent has successfully tempted Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree that God forbade for uh, Adam and Eve to eat from and Adam uh, was offered the same fruit by his wife and he chose to eat it 
Uh, she, we're, we're, we're told later in scripture, she was deceived in the interaction with the serpent. Adam was not. He knew it was wrong, but uh, he chose to cross that line and eat it anyway. As a result, the fall occurs. Uh, what theologically is now described as original sin has happened. And now we're just dealing with consequences and fallout from the, the uh, decision and action of Adam. And then there's this one little detail. I know you've noticed it before. We've certainly mentioned it before, but I, I want to now include this in part of the representation in type of the saving work of Christ. And it's a, it's a, it's a small representation, but not an insignificant one. And it's in um, Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, uh, at this point, why was there a need for there to be clothing for Adam and Eve? They had been created by God as uh, uh, beings that walked around without clothes, without there being any social stigma or any spiritual or moral failure on their part for walking around uh, without any clothes. And there are many that wonder why that is. Uh, there are a couple of different uh, possibilities in terms of answers that have been offered theologically. Uh, one is just the description that they were innocent, meaning that uh, you, might, you might see like a, a one-year-old baby running around the house naked uh, and they're, they're unashamed and they're just having fun and they're not thinking, oh, I got you know, to cover up. Why is that? Because they're innocent of those moral issues. They're not even self-aware of themselves as naked in that moment. They're just aware of having fun. So there is that possibility that Adam and Eve were just simply innocent. Uh, and then later in the experience of sin and the fall, they're made shamefully aware of their nakedness in a different perspective. The other possibility is this, and this is the one I personally lean toward, but scripture doesn't go into detail here, so it's somewhat of a supposition. In fact, both are, both conclusions. It was just their innocence versus what I'm going to describe. The other possibility is that they were clothed. They just weren't clothed with skins or with natural clothing in that way. Uh, but what possibly would have been their clothing prior to their fall? Uh, they were physically nude, but clothed in the sense, if this theory or supposition is correct, clothed with the, the presence of God's glory, meaning they were made in the image of God and God is the glorious one. To be made in the image of God means that there had to be some expression of God's nature emanating from them um, and, th and that in that glory uh, there would have been like a spiritual covering but then when they sin that glory is changed there's the loss of that glory and now they're for the first time painfully aware of their own nakedness as I said I don't want to be too dogmatic about either one of those those are the only two possibilities but what is interesting here in verse 21 is that after the fall and this is after the whole um, holding Adam and Eve and the serpent accountable for their sin that takes place earlier in the chapter. Um, the Lord intervenes here before he turns Adam and Eve loose to exit the garden and live out the rest of their lives in this world. Now under the influence of the fall, he chooses to do something for them which is ultimately a great blessing at two levels at the same time. First is an easy one to understand, which is it's just a natural blessing for them. Um, it's a blessing to have clothes in this world. You know, it's, it's a blessing to be clothed just for purposes of shame, in, in spite of the fact that our culture is losing all sense of shame about public nakedness. Um, and it's also a blessing just for protection from the elements. And certainly uh, in certain environments and certain times of the year, 
that's only heightened in terms of our awareness of the blessing. So there's a practical blessing of clothing them, but there's more that's being hinted at here than just the practical blessing of clothing. What is being hinted at? The Lord could have. There are clothes that are made from natural plant sources. The Lord could have woven palm fronds together and provided clothing for them in that way. Uh, But he doesn't do that. How does he provide clothes for them? He provides skins, which, what, 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 what are we talking about when we're talking about skins? We're talking about leather from animals. How do you get leather from animals? You don't walk up to an animal and say, could I, could I possibly borrow some of your leather? What do you do to get leather? You kill the animal, you slay the animal, and then you skin it, and you use it for your purposes. And here, it wasn't Adam that just because he's a survivalist and figuring out, we got to now work with the circumstances of the fall. I'm going to go out and kill me a, you know, I'm going to go out and kill me a deer and, and make some, you know, deer skin clothing for us. This is the Lord intervening. And what's implied, even though it's not described in detail, is the Lord killed at least one animal for them. And in killing that animal, he took the skin from the animal and he personally provided a covering for them. This is the, f- the first hint in God's actions of the coming work of salvation. He is providing a covering for the nakedness that is the direct result of their own sin. So he's making a covering pr- provision for their sin which is an image of redemption, which points directly to the saving work of Christ. All right, I think we will stop there tonight. I've got for the, uh, David, are you coming after me in the next teaching series? So I think I've got two more studies, uh, if you want to plan ahead, in terms of uh, Christ in the Old Testament events, and and then we'll move back to the book of Esther as uh, David is taking us through chapter by chapter the book of Esther. So we'll stop there tonight. God bless you. Hope to see you again next Thursday night.